Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 45 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, December the 15th. Yes, I know we missed out on an episode on December the 8th, but we had to leave that one because of medical issues. But we're back today. So today I'll be talking to Ben Fisterer, the CEO of business payment service Zeller, about the role that fintechs can play providing banking services for businesses. And I'll be talking to financial analyst Tim Buckley, the director of climate energy finance, about the Brookfield EIG battle to take over Origin. But first, let's talk to Ben Fisterer. What motivated you to found Zeller? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, I've been in the innovations, payments and banking space for a number of years. So there's generally a passion there and same thing with my uh, my co-founders. But ultimately, when uh, we kind of came together to think about creating Zeller, we knew that there was a problem in the Australian industry. It also a problem globally in many, many markets where if you look at business banking, it's obviously tightly held by four pretty big incumbent banks. And if you look at the solutions they provide, they're pretty generic. They haven't evolved much and they've still got a lot of problems in them. So the problems we think we can we can help solve is one, we can help uh, provide better terminals. So to accept payments quicker, faster, more innovatively as well, better pricing as well. But we're trying to solve three things at once. And that is helping businesses get paid better and simpler but also giving them somewhere to put their money at the same time and then get that money out the door straight away. So those three products were taken and then met, merged into a single product set. So you sign up once, you only pay $299 for everything. You get the terminal, you get the Zeller account, and you get the Zeller MasterCard. So you can get faster access to your payments and then you can put it to good work to pay bills, pay staff, pay invoices and bring that all together. And generally we think there just needs to be a whole lot more competition in the Australian market, which we're hoping to bring. Uh, how long did it take you to put together the technology for that? Uh, we started at the start of 2020 uh, and we launched in May this year. So it was a whirlwind of uh, 14 months or something, but a testament to the amazing team we brought together. They did a great job. And when you're in the thick of it, it, it certainly does feel like a lot's happening, but it's probably a couple of factors that were in, were in our favour where, you know, we weren't college grads, not there's anything wrong with college grads, but we weren't college grads coming out and saying, hey, let's jump into this cool space called FinTech. Like, this is something we've operated in for a number of years. So, we certainly started it with a head start, knowing what we needed to build, how to build it, and what it needed to look like and how we we're going to win the market. So we had a fair bit of advantage there, which helped us go faster, but there was an unprecedented amount of work to get the product out the door from day one, for sure. So you have you have wide variety of experience in the sector, though, too, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. I sort of started 
the first exposure I had to financial services was actually at Jetstar, which is somewhat ironic because, you know, when I was there helping the Jetstar team sort of grow the brand from launch, that's a similar thing was having to airline industries we're saying, seeing happening to the banking and the payment space at the moment, a lot of disruption, a lot of change coming through. But there we came across trying to put together a prepaid debit travel multi-currency card which i kind of kicked off the business case for and things like that and then moved into nab where i sort of helped them get into contactless payments and then mobile payments and then across to visa where I kind of kept that push going to make sure contactless payments in australia was the biggest market in the world and uh, then across to square where i spent sort of five to six years helping to take that brand from nothing up to being a a pretty sizable presence in the australian market today so yeah definitely came with a little bit of experience so uh, you, you obviously see the, quite a lot going on in the B2B banking industry. How do you see it? I mean, is it, why is there a need for stronger competition there? Uh, there's a few things. One, I don't think the innovation's coming through. I mean, we've got an unprecedented time of technology, technological change at the moment, and that's not, to come, that's just not coming through. You only have to look at the terminals that sit on the majority of businesses' countertops, and they are old, traditional, small screens, offering basically a number being routed around the ecosystem. And they don't do anything other than that primary function. We believe in that payment experience. There's a lot that can be done. But then once you set that up, then you got to set up a bank account. And often a bank account is another laborious process where you may not get accepted as a business or very confusing onboarding. Often you have to go into a branch and wait weeks to get set up. And then on the back end of that, if you want to spend that money, you then got to go and apply for a, you know, a MasterCard or a business MasterCard to get going. And that's a whole other process, a whole other set of understanding rules, fees, terms and conditions, contracts and what have you. And, and, and that shouldn't be the case. Like every business needs these products and we should be able to offer them vastly more simple. We're not talking about lending money here. There shouldn't be this rigmarole and this protracted process happening. So yeah, we, we thought we could do it better. We could truncate it and make it a, a better solution. But ultimately, again, the, the competition, if you look at the four majors, their solutions are incredibly sim- similar and they haven't changed much. So uh, we believe we can do a whole lot better and hopefully we're proving that. Well, the four majors are pretty much uh, Australian institutions and Correct. being Australian institutions, they're fairly set in their ways. How has that impacted on the B2B industry? I think mainly because of the lack of competition, whether that's competition of product or whether that's competition of price, it's just simply not enough. And and I think it, we hear it consistently that, you know, they don't get the service they need. You know, they don't get the innovation they need. They're, all these businesses, I mean, that banking and payments is not their passion for for Australian businesses. They've got their passion, they've built a product or a service and they've struggled to you know, get customers and get that to market. But when it comes to actually the simple, what should be a simple process of accepting payments and holding money and spending their money, it's really, really difficult. And it, it just shouldn't be that way. And I think because the banks have been around so long, I mean, they've done a good job, don't get me wrong. They're not, but, but ultimately they're not changing fast enough to keep up and businesses need more in today's environment. But there's a whole sweeping change, whether it's buy now, pay later, or, you know, POS systems, accounting software, all these sort of things need to be better integrated, better merged into these products. And they don't need the confusion um, of adding banking products. So yeah, we think we can merge that and make that a whole lot simpler and take a lot of burden out of Australian businesses, but, but ultimately also offer better pricing as well, which is important to Australian businesses, particularly now. Well, those sorts of issues raise a whole lot of issues for uh, bricks and mortar stores. And so there'd be a whole lot of challenges and opportunities for bricks and mortar stores. hundred percent. I mean, I've been working as an, as an in payments for a long time, and I never thought that the demise of cash would be, would come about finally due, due to a global pandemic. But I mean, what we're seeing is an accelerated shift away from cash and to, towards electronic payments. So 
you know, a lot of businesses were migrating that way anyway. Anyway, Australians are quite advanced in their adaptation to new payment forms, but that's just gone stratospherically quickly over the last 12, 14 months. So every business needs to accept electronic payments. On the back of that, they're also realizing through these challenging times that they need to be better set up to actually set to, to use new payment methods, to run their business more effectively, to get better pricing, to not only survive, compete, and and to keep thriving in the market. So they have to do that as well. We're hoping to see a lot of Australian businesses will help them get back on their feet. And the last is that during these difficult times, often spearheads unprecedented periods of entrepreneurialism from Australian businesses of all types. So we're really looking forward to offering them a genuine alternative to get, you know, to get going, to get set up more simply and make sure that their banking and payments products aren't a burden on their business in any way. But you see that you would say that uh, Australian bricks and mortar stores really have to get used to, well, a cashless economy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, I know there's a little bit of resistance by some pockets, but I think once people start using electronic payments, they start realizing that they can run their business so much more efficiently, so much more. And that can streamline process from, you know, getting rid of cash collection, reconciliation, any sort of losses that they see in that, taking it to banks, counting it up, putting in accounting software, all that, that often gets lost in the in the look at when you when you compare the cost of card versus cash, is that that, that burden on a business and that time-consuming efforts is huge. Uh, so if they can just eradicate that and it can be done by better systems, they can focus on what they do well, which is running their business. Okay, but uh, you would see then an acceleration in growth of payment options like tap and go. I think um, I'm thrilled to say, because I've worked in this space for a long time, tap and go, I think Australians have a lot to be proud of in terms of you know adopting that and, and getting the, the best from it. And you know being able to put better throughput for customers um, is a big part of better service for a lot of businesses. So uh, yeah, that's, you know, a huge utilization in Australia of contactless and tap and go technology and very well established. I think what you'll find now is just that final closing of the gap where all payments are effectively tapped and all payments, if they aren't, there are at least electronic card payments happening. So yeah, it's just finalized that part of it, which is exciting. Do you see any potential resistance among businesses to that? No, I, I don't. I mean, there's always some people that might choose to, you know, want to stick to cash for whatever reasons. I don't want to make assumptions there, but this is a better way to transact. It, it, just, it is. It's more efficient. It, it holds a lot of streamlined processes and helps them run their business more effectively. So I think any resistance that might be, once you try it, and you, you can see how you can make it, take, use it for the advantage of your business. It's very hard to argue against it. So I think there's a period of change happening at the end, but I think it'll be a positive. So where, where do you see the future for Zeller? I mean, do you see it becoming a bank? Well, we're sort of stuck in a dichotomy because the, the traditional definition of a bank is something we kind of rally against. And maybe that's just been formed by the industry over the years, but ultimately providing banking services and financial services is absolutely what we do and want to do more of. So if, you know, if, you, if you're defining becoming a bank as holding a, an ADI and getting to the space, yeah, that's an inevitable part of our journey. Um, but for us, it's offering just better financial services and we think you can do it differently. There's a new model for it to be done and it can be done as safely, as efficiently and even better for Australian businesses. And yeah, we're looking forward to that more than actually becoming the, the terminology putting a, you know, over the top of our business being a bank. Okay, well, Ben, we'll be watching it very closely and thank you very much for your time. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Leon. And now let's talk to Tim Buckley, the Director of Climate Energy Finance. Well, Tim, it looks like uh, the uh, Origin Board is going to reject this Brookfield EIG takeover. Uh, what's your view about this? Well, the Origin Board is definitely going to reject the Plan B. I think the share price is telling us the shareholders will reject the Plan A. 
And so it's going to leave Origin sitting in a little bit of a limbo. And then the question is, does Brookfield walk away, which is quite possible, or do they come up with a plan C? And I would also argue it then puts a spotlight on what is Australian Super's plan D, because Australian Super has stepped up, played an unprecedented role in blocking a foreign takeover, but they're also blocking an additional 20 or $30 billion of new investment, critically needed investment in decarbonisation assets across Australia. So I would say it puts an onus on Australian Super to come up with a plan D where they make good the fund investments that Australia needs to solve the joint energy, climate and cost of living crises we've got. So I think there'll be a bit of pressure on Australian Super to come up with a plan D. Well, I mean, this is this is interesting because at the end of the day, I mean, this is this is all about we've got an energy crisis, the cost of living crisis, a climate crisis, and uh, the, the energy transformation of uh, origin can actually address this. It can. It's got a critical incumbent role to address it. And that's, I would argue, that's one of the key reasons Brookfield wants to spend $20 billion buying them. That it's a lot easier to use the incumbent power of Origin or AGL to actually drive the transition to de-risk your projects, to use the buying power of 4 million customers across Australia so that you can use the integrated energy trading systems. You can do it all from scratch, but that takes longer and has more risks. So yes, at the end of the day, Origin plays a key role, but I would say a a little bit of a spanner in the works for Brookfield comes from Energy Minister Bowen's intervention last week to, to quadruple the intentions with regards to the capacity investment scheme for the federal government to underwrite um, contracts for up to 32,000 megawatts of new firmed renewables, that would double the amount of renewables on grid in Australia over the next three, four, five years. That also de-risks it financially. So it does actually mean that Australia's superannuation funds could well be able to create instruments and step up relatively rapidly themselves now that the federal government's taking on that risk and trying to accelerate deployment of capital. So it does give options other than Brookfield, but let's see how that plays out over time. Well, it does actually put a lot of focus in on what the hell is Australian Super going to be planning? Yes, and we we have seen a couple of funds like REST, Host Plus and Aware Super making quite big announcements in the last two months. Like Aware Super announced that they were deploying, they have deployed $300 million. Like that's a drop in the ocean compared to a uh, the $3.5 trillion superannuation pool across Australia. But it's $300 million with an intention to go up to $2 billion in investments in distributed energy resources across Australia with Birdwood Energy. So $300 million is a down payment on $2 billion. We saw... Uh, Another big fund, I think it was Seabust or Host, had put in a billion dollars into Quinbook Investment Partners, into renewable energy, into green data centres and into infrastructure, a, a net zero emissions transition fund, very much along the lines of what Brookfield has raised. Brookfield raised $15 billion US dollars for a net zero emissions fund, and that's what's being used to, to fund the takeover of Origin Energy. But... 300 million is very different from 15 billion. We need to see money deployed at massive scale. We in fact saw 
eight of Australia's biggest super funds have just put out a paper this morning looking at the role of superannuation in funding the energy transition for Australia. They estimate that in the electricity sector alone by 2050, Australia needs upwards of $300 billion. My estimate's upwards of $400 billion. So that is a huge amount of money. Ironically, we're, we're seeing our big super funds now talking about the $300, $400 billion investment opportunity. And so that comes right in the middle of Brookfield being the only big global fund who's really looking to deploy capital at the speed and scale required for Australia. So that does bring in a bit of competition to Brookfield. The, the interesting thing about super funds is that their investment profiles are I mean, if people are investing in super funds, they're talking about 40 years' time that they'll be using the fund. So the super fund has an outlook of 40 years. And it's, it's not, it's not uh, you know, a quick turnover or anything like that, like other funds. No, it's not. But they also have, fun, thanks to our 11% superannuation harvest, they have literally hundreds of billions of dollars of new capital coming every year. And they have, their biggest problem is how do they deploy hundreds of billions of dollars in new funds every year. And so they do have a long-term fiduciary duty that should be the absolute focus of all of their investments. And I would argue investing in 20-year renewable energy infrastructure assets is actually really well aligned with the long-term interests of superannuation funds if they are de-risked, if they're not going to take grid connection risks. They're not going to take construction risks. They're not going to take policy risks. And so you need the projects to be de-risks. It needs to be like infrastructure. If you're buying a toll road with a 35-year annuity, if you're buying a port or a, a an airport, you know you're buying monopoly regulated infrastructure assets with a long-term franchise. If the federal government comes along, well, not if, Minister Bowen has just said he will come along and provide 20-year power offtake agreements for new projects, once those projects are built, that is a 20 or 25-year cash flow annuity stream. And particularly as we see the Australian population ageing, our super funds move from a growth mandate to an annuity profile and so they're going to need more annuity income streams. And there's no better annuity than a 20-year offtake agreement for a wind and solar battery-firmed infrastructure asset. It can be perfectly aligned with the interests of members, but I've put a lot of ifs in there. If you've been grid-connected, if you have policy certainty, if you have a 20-year power purchase agreement, and once the project's been built. So superannuation is the perfect opportunity to recycle our capital once all of those risks have been resolved and recycle that capital. So the Origin Energies, the Brook, the AGLs of Australia, the Macquarie Groups create the products and then they sell it off for the long-term patient owners in the superannuation industry. So uh, at the end of the day, that is an opportunity to rinse and repeat and deploy literally three or four hundred billion dollars of member assets in perfect alignment with the sole purpose test of the superannuation industry. The sole purpose test being to maximise the long-term risk-adjusted returns to, to members. And, but it also means that those super funds then play a critical role in, as you said, so helping solve the combined crises, the climate crisis, the energy crisis, the cost of living crisis that is smashing us right now. 
And of course, the, the issue will be de-risking it, but that shouldn't be too difficult? I don't think it is. Now, at the end of the day, we do need, we, we, we need to build, as Minister Bowen talks about, we need to build 10,000, 20,000 kilometres of new grid transmission and distribution cables. There are social licence to operate issues. I think that's about aligning the interests of the landowners whose land we're using, um, aligning the interests of the neighbours to the properties that are being used. It's about building the social licence and I think at the end of the day, making sure that the regional communities affected feel that they're getting a, a fair share of the benefits as well as carrying all of the costs. But social licence is an issue. The federal government is working with the states to try and resolve that. We do need to deploy a lot of money in the grid transmission. So, Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The Albanese government's allocated $20 billion in their Rewiring the Nation program to deploy capital, to provide the framework, and uh, that's what Minister Bowen's doing with his capacity investment scheme, the 32 gigawatts of financial tools that effectively create the financial products for the big end of town, the big super funds to actually crowd in their capital. So we have to watch the space very carefully. We do. It's a, it's an interesting. We certainly Monday's vote's almost a shoe in. It, the the bid will get rejected by more than 25% of shareholders. The, the share price this week suggesting that's almost inevitable. But that's only round two. Uh, we, we round three, and that's part of the problem. I, I do worry. Look, you don't want one of Australia's biggest energy companies, Origin Energy. I don't want them ending up foreign owned. I, I'm nationalistic. I think I want our big Australian companies to pay corporate tax to the Australian government. Brookfield never covers itself in, in glory by uh, basing itself in tax havens and and paying next to zero corporate tax in Australia on all the billions of assets they already own here. So I'm not actually a fanboy of Brookfield, but what I am a fan of is having a livable planet. We need to see hundreds of billions of dollars of capital deployed at speed and scale in solving the energy crisis, the cost of living crisis, the climate crisis, and actually repositioning the Australian economy so that we can be a renewable energy superpower in the future. We have a legacy, as Dr. Finkel says, we're a petrostate. We're the third largest exporter of fossil fuels in the world. But the trouble is that is going to have to come to an end for us to have a livable, sustainable economy. So therefore, we've got to reinvest aggressively at speed in the industries of the future and provide what our key customers in Japan, China, Korea, India want and what they need is 
zero emission solutions like green iron rather than iron ore and coke and coal. They still need our green iron, but it won't be in the form of coke and coal. So let's provide the necessary transformation. That means hundreds of billions of dollars of investments. That means our super funds like Australian Super will have to play a key role. So Australian Super is one of the signatories to the new report out today. I would love them to see see them actually read their own report and act at speed and scale in alignment with their own words of wisdom, because this is a huge opportunity to reposition the Australian economy. Australia can play a globally leading role if we just get our act together. We've made good strides in the last 12, 18 months, but we've got a long way to go. And uh, I think finance is going to play, has to play a key role in it because the opportunity to deploy half a trillion dollars in the Australian economy, we're not going to get that money from Jim Chalmers. He's made that very clear. Much as I'm pushing him to put 100 billion of our taxpayer money into crowding in the private capital, I want the future fund to have a mandate. I want the CFC to keep doing what it's doing. I need the National Reconstruction Fund and EFA and NAIF and ARENA to do the public interest roles they're doing. But even if they do everything that I'm asking, Super's going to have to deploy three, four, five hundred billion dollars of private capital. We're going to have to have global capital come in from the POSCOs, the KEPCOs, the CATLs, etc. Global players will play a key role here as well. It's got to be a partnership deal. And that's where the Australian Supers of the world will play a key role or they can just keep playing a blocking role. And uh, at some point, Chalmers is going to then have to step up and tell them how to actually do their fiduciary duty if they can't learn it themselves. Well, Tim, it's been fascinating to talk to you and very important words. And thank you very much for your time. Brilliant. Nice to work with you, Leo. So what's happening in the news? Well, Chemist Warehouse and its proposed partner, Sigma Healthcare, are confident they'll be able to walk through any issues raised by the competition regulator about market concentration in the pharmacy sector as part of the group's $8.8 billion merger. Chemist Warehouse and Sigma unveiled their long-awaited plans to list on the Australian Securities Exchange via a reverse listing through Sigma, which owns the Amcal brand and a successful medicine distribution business. Chemist Warehouse's shareholders will own 85.75% of the newly merged entity once the deal is complete. Families of Chemist Warehouse's billionaire founders, Jack Kantz and Mario Verrocci, will hold 49% of the group, valuing their holding in the group in excess of $2 billion each. The families will also receive a $700 million cash payment as part of the deal. The major shareholders will have the vast bulk of their remaining shares escrowed until August 2026. The deal will also involve Sigma raising $400 million from shareholders to assist in providing liquidity to the newly merged group via a book build managed by Goldman Sachs Australia. As part of the transaction, Gans and Verrocci will join the combined group's board, while Sigma's chairman, Michael Samuels, and its chief executive, Vikesh Ramsunda, will remain in their roles. The transaction is expected to attract significant scrutiny from the Australian Competition Consumer Commission as Chemist Warehouse supplies about 600 pharmacy-led stores via franchise arrangements, while Sigma supports 340 pharmacies under its Amcal and Discount Drugstore brands. And the long-term cost of the federal government's debt interest bill has blown out by $80 billion since the May budget, overtaking the National Disability Insurance Scheme as the Commonwealth's fastest-growing expense. 
Treasurer Jim Chalmers on Sunday confirmed the Mid-Year Economic and Fiscal Outlook, MYEFO, will be delivered on Wednesday, just one day before the release of monthly labour force figures, which are expected to show the jobless rate hit an 18-month high of 3.8% in November. MYEFO will show the interest bill now forecast to grow at an average rate of 11.7% per annum over the next decade, up from 8.8% in the May but a 10-year bond yield has increased by about 100 basis points since May to 4.3%, alongside a global rise in long-term yields. Treasury estimates the average cost of new government borrowing has risen to 4.7% from 3.4% as a result. The increase means the federal government will spend $80 billion more money than previously forecast over the next decade, paying interest. The next fastest-growing expense will be the $42 billion NDIS, which is expected to grow at an average annual rate of 10.1% above the federal government's 8% target. Hospital funding, defence spending and Medicare are the next fastest growing areas of spending, increasing between 5.9% and 6.5% per year over the next decade. Despite the mounting pressure from interest payments, Dr Chalmers said gross debt in 2023-24 is forecast to be close to $900 billion as the budget benefits from a surge in revenue from stronger-than-expected income tax and commodity prices. And a shortfall of 229,000 workers is looming across the infrastructure sector, with warnings that will add to ongoing cost pressures on everything from steel to quarry rocks and make planning for new homes, roads and power generation even more difficult. Federal Government's Chief Advisor on Infrastructure Projects, Infrastructure Australia, used a report on the sector's capacity constraints to reveal that the cost of some vital goods will climb another 25% this financial year, putting more pressure on government and private sector budgets. Some of the hardest hit areas will be in regional New South Wales and Victoria, where major roadworks will struggle for essential inputs and workers. The agency says the federal government needs to bring in more migrant engineers. All levels of government and the private sector have reported large cost overruns due to a combination of worker shortages, problems with supply chains and the sheer quantity of infrastructure work spread across the country over the past two years. Infrastructure Australia found the nation's construction-related workforce needs to grow by 127% to meet a shortage of workers that will peak in the middle of next year. Of the 229,000 shortfall of full-time workers, the agency estimates 131,000 are in trades and labour. There are also significant shortages of engineers, architects and scientists. The agency's chief executive, Adam Kopp, said on top of spending $230 billion in public infrastructure over the next five years, governments were hoping for the construction of 1.2 million new homes, as well as a quadrupling of spending in the energy sector. The government has released a draft of its proposed revisions to the Tax Agents Code of Conduct as part of a raft of measures designed to tighten controls in the wake of the PwC scandal. The draft outlines changes relating to additional obligations, integrity provisions, false or misleading statements, conflicts of interest, confidentiality and it goes hand in hand with the consultation paper on strengthening sanctions and ashes in a sequence of Treasury-led reviews in response to the PwC tax secrets affair. The Conduct Legislative Instrument changes the Tax Agent Services Act 2009 and releasing the draft, Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones said it included measures to manage conflicts of interest, prevent unauthorised disclosure of confidential information, require disclosure of investigation or sanctions to a client and put in place adequate supervision and quality assurance arrangements. And the Tax Practitioners Board will be able to pursue tax agents who break the code of conduct with beefed up civil and criminal penalties in an overhaul of its sanction powers proposed by a consultation paper released on Sunday. The paper 
enhancing the tax practitioner board's extensions regime. We'll also see the government expand the board's suspension powers and add infringement notices and enforce more voluntary undertakings to its arsenal. Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones, releasing the paper along with draft amendments to the Tax Agent Services Act, said the proposals delivered on the government's promise to oversee the biggest crackdown on tax advisor misconduct in history following the PwC tax scandal. The TPB board's powers are currently limited to issuing low-level sanctions, such as written cautions and further education, and high-level sanctions, including the suspension or termination of registration and civil penalties. But nothing between these two, the consultation paper said. It said the TPB also had limited avenues to seek criminal penalties, available only when individuals refuse or fail to comply with the taxation law, or made false or misleading statements to a taxation officer. Stronger sanctions are necessary to deter egregious behaviour and enable the TPB to have a full range of graduated responses, it said. The current sanction regime does not allow the TPB to act quickly in certain circumstances where urgent action is required. Under the proposed changes, the TPB will be able to seek criminal penalties for unregistered practitioners deemed as serious contraveners, such as those who repeatedly provided tax agent services while unregistered or engaging in intentional wrongdoing. The government also proposed expanding the circumstances when the TPB could apply to the Federal Court for civil penalties, as well as increasing the existing penalties available to respond to emerging threats to the integrity of the tax system in an agile and proportionate manner. Penalties would also be available for a wider range of behaviours, such as acting dishonestly, failing to avoid conflicts of interest, or keeping client information confidential, or providing services incompetently. Maximum civil penalties for individuals would increase tenfold, to $782,500. The government also proposed increasing the penalties applied to firms that had directors or partners breaching the code of conduct from $391,250 to the greater of $15.7 million, or 10% of aggregated turnover, with a $782.5 million cap. Additionally, the TPB suspension powers would be expanded to include contingent suspensions, deregistering tax practitioners until they remedied their breach instead of setting a suspension end date, and interim suspensions to allow it to respond immediately to breaches without waiting for an investigation to be final. Also included in the consultation paper were proposals to add infringement notice provisions and enforceable voluntary undertaking to the TPB's powers costs. And Australia's insurance giants are warning premium costs will spiral beyond the reach of more households unless some homes are really located from high-risk areas and planning laws are improved to better consider natural disasters. Insurance Australia Group, IAG, Suncor and QBE have put the spotlight on rising premiums and point to locations like Wilberforce, Emu Plans and Warwick Farm in Sydney's Basin where planning controls fail to deal with unacceptable residual flood risk. The House of Representatives Committee inquiry into insurers' responses to last year's East Coast flooding disaster, the most expensive insurance events in the nation's history with $4 billion in claims, received 17 submissions including from the nation's biggest insurers. Speaking ahead of an IAG land planning report released on Monday, the insurer's land planning hazards and regulatory manager, Andrew Dyer, said houses are being approved in areas under the current planning framework where natural disaster risk levels are unacceptably high. We've got to stop putting more people's assets in harm's way, and this is really through land planning reform, he said. That's where your biggest bang for buck is. For a new $500,000 house in Wilberforce, the flood insurance premium is roughly $3,700, or about 3.2% of the area's median household income, the report says. That does not include other typical changes, like non-flood base premiums, which can boost the total cost to around $6,200, making it unaffordable for many. Dyer said current views on an unacceptable risk in land planning don't adequately factor in 
natural disasters, leaving some communities with really unacceptable financial outcomes. Other localities lack national guidance for planned relocations, he said. The risk in some areas is approaching levels where you're not talking about insurance availability or affordability, he said. You're really talking about the habitability and viability of those communities. There is no national guidance currently on planned relocation, and we think that's a bit of a black hole. In its submission to the inquiry, Suncor said Australia's current built environment is dealing with the consequence of decades of poor planning, and more government support and investment is needed for mitigation efforts. Increasingly, the likelihood is that more properties will only be insurable at a cost beyond the reach of most homeowners, the company said. Affordable insurance and the backstop of government have always been there to deal with the consequences, but the evolving risk appetite of global reinsurers combined with the recognition of a changing climate has rendered this traditional model obsolete. Luxury property, cars, boats and cash worth $110 million have been seized from the country's biggest money laundering ring by Australian Federal Police, bringing the value of assets taken from alleged criminals to more than $1.1 billion in four years. AFP Commissioner Rhys Kershaw, who updated the results of Operation Avarice Knife at a press conference in Sydney on Tuesday, said the money laundering investigation led to seven members of an alleged organised crime syndicate being charged in October. The suspects, who include a former ANZ employee, are accused of laundering close to $229 million as part of $10 billion moved over three years by the exchanges, operating in plain sight from shiny shop fronts across the country. The AFP-led Criminal Assets Confiscation Task Force restrained more than $50 million in assets from the alleged money laundering syndicate known as Long River, which ranked Changyang currency exchange shops. The assets included 14 residential properties in Victoria, Queensland and Western Australia, six motor vehicles and 51 bank accounts and shares. The update revealed further police action means the value of assets confiscated has now $160 million, including more properties in Victoria and Queensland, additional bank accounts and luxury items. Police claim the suspects were living the high life in mansions in Melbourne, flying private jets and buying luxury watches, wine and sake. The assets are believed to include a Mercedes, Maybach, GLS worth $400,000, a $94,000 diamond Rolex watch, handbags designed by Hermes and Louis Vuitton, and bottles of Penfolds Grange valued at more than $100,000. Veteran publisher Maurice Schwartz, owner of Schwartz Media, which produces the Saturday paper, the monthly and 7am podcast, has stepped down as the company's chair. Schwartz told staff on Monday in an email that he was stepping aside as chair and stepping back from day-to-day operations one month after Chief Executive Rebecca Costello departed to join The Guardian Australia. Schwartz said it was the right moment to take a break and that internal opposition to coverage of the Gaza conflict did not play a role in the timing of his move. Schwartz, who has been acting as interim Chief Executive, said he was not considering a sale of the company. Founded in the 1980s, Schwartz Media has become one of Australia's largest independent publishers and a leading voice in progressive media. Its weekly print publication, The Saturday Paper, will reach a decade in circulation in 2024. And Seven West Media Chairman Kerry Stokes has capitulated and agreed to pay the multi-million dollar costs of Ben Robert Smith defamation litigation in a move that stops communications between the former soldiers' lawyers and his chief supporters at Seven from being made public. At a surprise hearing in the Federal Court on Monday, lawyers for Stokes said his private company would pay the Age and Sydney Morning Herald's legal costs, estimated at more than $60 million, on an indemnity basis, which covers a higher proportion of a cost bill than the standard order, including Robert Smith's own costs. The 
total costs of litigation are expected at more than $30 million. Stokes had resisted an application by the nine-owned newspaper for his private company, Australian Capital Equity, ACE, to pay the cost of the litigation, but agreed to the orders after the seven parties failed to meet a court-ordered deadline to produce a tranche of communications with Robert Smith's lawyers by noon on Friday. Nicholas Owens, SC, appearing for the newspapers, described the move as a complete capitulation by Stokes' private company. Stokes bankrolled Robert Smith's lawsuit via a loan provided by the ACE. Seven network operations had originally funded the former soldier's case, but ACE took over seven loans on June 24, 2020, and Stokes' company paid out his existing debt. In an historic decision on June 1st this year, Federal Court Justice Anthony Basenko dismissed the lawsuit and found the newspapers had proven to the civil standards on the balance of probabilities that Robert Smith was complicit in the murder of four unarmed prisoners in Afghanistan. He also found the news outlet had proven the former Special Air Services Corporal bullied a former soldier. Basenko later ruled that Robert Smith was liable for the legal costs of a dispute on an indemnity basis, which allows the successful party to recover 90 to 95% of their costs. And universities and private colleges considered at high risk of recruiting international students to Australia to work rather than study stand to lose tens of millions of dollars in revenue under the government's new migration strategy. Victoria University and Federal University in Victoria and Wollongong and New South Wales universities in New South Wales are among those whose ability to easily recruit international students is in jeopardy. Meanwhile, the Independent Tertiary Education Council Australia, which represents hundreds of private colleges, described the new migration strategy as reckless and said Australia's broken visa processing system was to blame not students. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill and Immigration Minister Andrew Giles on Monday released the Federal Government's migration strategy, which plans to halve immigration numbers within two years. Australia's net migration reached a high of 510,000 in the year to June 2023. The strategy is designed to weed out people using the student visa system as a backdoor to the job market, aiming to cut new arrivals by targeting universities and colleges, and considered the highest risk of accepting students coming to Australia to work rather than study. And that's it for this week. And this is the final episode of Talking Business for 2023. We'll be back in February. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you and your families all a safe and healthy Christmas and New Year. And looking forward to bringing Talking Business in February 2024. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.